0: Ah, there you are. We're here to talk about the reading and the writing, so uh, this should be fun right here on yet another Overnightscape Central, and if you're here for the first time welcome and uh, i hope you will be contributing uh I, I mean i don't we don't mind if you just listen of course because that's the basic intent of anything like this but uh, this program allows you to talk back and uh, participate in the tomfoolery so to speak and at the end of the show i will be telling you next week's topic and give you an email so you can be part of the Overnightscape Underground Magic Raid here. I am P.Q. River. Uh, at least last I checked, so we'll go with that. And uh, if that ever changes, we will update you at that point. And uh, I think all of us on SUG hosts and many of the listeners are indeed both readers and writers and uh... Language is uh, the constituent element of our very thoughts, and reading and writing is the transcription thereof. So uh, it fits right in with this flow of information and absurdity twisting around one another in an endless cycle of amazing podcasts on the Overnightscape Underground. Yeah, uh, am I shelling enough? Oh, I—you bet I am. Uh, so, this week we have, uh, I believe, three hosts who have uh, been kind enough to join the fun. And uh, we are going to hear from Chad Bowers, Doc Slees and of course, as we do every week, Frank, Edward, Nora, talking about the reading and the writing and... Uh, Chad Bowers will get us started here now. Let's listen together.
1: It's late summer, 1962. We've been stationed at the Thomasville radar site for six months now. All of us are getting pretty good at our jobs. It's only a few techs from Sperry, and burrows still wandering around. In truth, we now know the radar system as good as they do. Perhaps almost. I take and pass my five-level proficiency test, qualifying for pro-pay. Doing good. For a young airman, life is great. I visit Cheryl, my new girlfriend, at least twice a week. I work eight hours a day. I have enough money to buy cigs, some new clothes, and now and then put some gas in the car. Plus, I'm trained to work on one of the largest and most advanced radar units in the entire world. I tell you, for an 18 year old, it doesn't get much better. The radar is officially being turned over to the Air Force once we pass the beta test. I have no idea why they call it that, sort of like Zulu time. Who is it that picks these names? Anyway, during the test, we have to maintain continuous operation for 48 hours. Then, we must defeat, detect a mock attack on the southern U.S. by enemy bombers coming in from the Gulf of Mexico. Actually, they're B-52s out of Eglin Air Force Base in Pensacola, Florida. But we pretend they are the Russians. The MAJAC room, master, anti-jam, and control, is where system performance is being monitored. As the test progresses, we can see clearly 11 bogies about 200 miles out, heading for shore at 450 miles per hour. The PPI, Plan Positioning Indicator Scope, goes wild with blips everywhere. They're jamming us. They're masking their real positions. The MAJAC console has an analog display that shows the azimuth and the frequency that each plane is using to jam our signal. So we're then able to program in frequency changes for a few degrees azimuth around the jammer's position and paint him out again. Then naturally the plane changes frequency and we lose him again. The planes are using what is called electronic countermeasures or ECM. We are using electronic counter countermeasures, ECCM. This cat-and-mouse game goes on for an hour and a half until it appears The B-52s are getting the better of it. Then unexpectedly, we totally lose our transmitter drive. The Amplitron, main transmitter tube, goes into oscillation. In this state, it's randomly shifting from one frequency at another up to thousands of times per second. We didn't plan it this way. But as it turns out, we can now see the planes clearly right through their electronic countermeasures. Our transmitter oscillation is changing frequency so fast that the plane systems cannot adapt to it. However, our receiver automatically tracks any transmitted frequency and then adjusts the receiver to pick, pick up that frequency, indicating the position of the plane. The Air Command defense people at Craig Air Force Base know that the planes are now only 30 miles out, and they should be able to overload our receiver with false signals at this point. They can't understand how we can still see them. It's just not possible. We don't tell them we're enjoying the fun too much. The squawk box comes alive every now and then. With a question from Ops. Uh, t what's your transmitted power over? We tell them and then wait. Uh, Thomasville, uh, what's your range gate blanking? Uh, Roger Thomasville, could you please repeat your current transmitter frequency over? We can tell they're going absolutely nuts because it's just not supposed to work this way. We volunteer no usable information. Chalk went up for the radar boys. We passed the test and officially become linked to the SAGE network of worldwide radar sites feeding live computer and radar scope data to NORAD. We did, however, get a very nasty memo from Air Defense Operations after a thorough investigation confirmed that we had allowed our transmitter to oscillate and didn't tell anyone about it. Note, a main transmitter tube operates at 10 million watts of power. It absolutely should not be allowed to oscillate for long, as it will burn out. Officially, We are online now, sort of. The radar still only runs properly every other day if we're lucky. The rest of the time, we're replacing high-priced tetrode tubes and magnetic amplifiers. These tubes blow out every couple days and the mag amps short out almost as frequently. These particular tubes have gold-plated contacts and are very expensive. One of my co-workers in the transmitter section is a guy my age named Godfried, but we call him Fritz. He and I joke that, you know, we're burning up a good $20,000 a week. But when you're 18, government money is not real. It's nothing to be concerned about. We just order more. In early October 1962, we receive word that a special team from Sperry was coming in to extend the range of our receiver by three to five times. This would make it possible for us to see objects up to 1,500 miles away. At that range, our beam would be in space due to the curvature of the Earth. We all wonder, what in the hell's going on? And why do they want us scanning space? One of our buddies is a guy named Norman. He happens to work in the communications center. He gets and decodes all of the cryptographic messages. Even though it is top secret, he lets us know what's going on prior to the commander's call announcing that the Russians have placed nuclear missiles in Cuba. Holy crap. We're directed to get the radar operational immediately and go to DEFCON 3. The base is sealed off. Additional MPs are sent in from Craig Air Force Base. No one gets in the compound or out who doesn't work there or with a pass. We're on full military alert status 24 hours a day, a good two and a half weeks prior to when President Kennedy told the nation what was going on. The President said that any attack on any nation in the Western Empire would be considered an attack on the United States of America, and would be met with a full retaliatory response. Perhaps the strongest direct statement ever spoken by a U.S. president. The guys on the base had considered this somewhat of an exercise up to that point. Somewhat of a lark. But when Kennedy was through speaking two weeks later, there was absolute silence in the rec room. None of his... Knew quite what to do or say. We just sat there for a while. Then the quiet discussions began. People speaking in low tones as if in church. The realization of possible nuclear war was sitting in. Damn, this whole thing is real. But the radar won't cooperate. The mag amps keep shorting out. and We're down to our last four. There's a big meeting that night. The transmitter crew, the C&E officer, and a guy from Sperry are all trying to figure out how to make these things work. Fritz and Bowers, that's me, have an idea. But nobody pays much attention to airmen seconds when all the tech sergeants and officers are talking. I'm a little intimidated, but I say, sir, we may be able to fix that. They don't hear me. They don't pay attention. I try again. Sir, Fritz and I have an idea that might work. Lieutenant Colonel Mitchell looks my way and asks the rest to be quiet for a minute. He wants to hear this idea. I move up, approach the table with Fritz, and we explain that the terminals on top of the mag amp are too close to the metal case. These things are about 24 inches wide and 12 inches high, all metal with four terminal posts on top. The connections are very heavy-duty, rated for hundreds of thousands of volts. However, they've been manufactured with the terminals too close together, and too close to the metal case. After they'd turned the power up, this closeness would mean arcing. That's what Fritz and I believed, anyway. I tell them to separate the contacts and the terminal posts from the main case of the unit, to use a piece of phenolic insulating material to make new mounts for the connections. This way the post will be insulated, and will be far enough above the case not to short out. Then, when we have a high current situation occur, it will not arc and blow the amp. I see some looks exchanged between the powers that be, and confirmation from the Sperry guys that this just might work. Lieutenant Mitchell doesn't even talk about it. He just says, do it now. Fritz and I work on with lots of supervision. Everybody wants to be in on this fix. But they all know who thought it up, and I love it when the plan comes together. After a couple hours, we have modification completed on two units. We install them in the Amplitron room. This takes an additional 20 hours to get the system up and running. Finally, we are ready. Everybody holds their breath. We run the transmitter up to full power. We are at 2 megawatts and holding. 6 megawatts, 8. We have 90,000 volts on the plate, 10 megawatts out of the horn, and she's holding. The real trick will be when we start to change frequencies and cause varying loads to be placed on the output stages. We start at 4 to 450 megacycles and it holds steady as a rock. All that high-priced help and a couple 18-year-old airmen seem to have come up with the fix. The lesson here is that when you have a real problem, ask the people that actually do the work how to fix it. Needless to say, we're very proud of ourselves. All told, we worked 36 straight hours from the time we got word about the missiles until the entire system was combat ready. Adrenaline is remarkable stuff.
2: Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere. And we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved.
1: We ran the transmitter for the duration of the crisis and never let it go off the air. Prior to then, we were lucky to keep it running for two days in a row. But with missiles in Cuba, it had to run. Our beam was sweeping over Cuba first then a beam from Texas, top of ours. Finally, a radar in Morristown, New Jersey, was sweeping across the top of the Texas beam. The data from these three radars was being fed through a system
2: called the SAGE system. It was the first internet. Around the clock, radars' electronic eyes watch the skies and report what they see to SAGE defense system of the United States Air Force. At its heart is a computer developed by a research team from MIT and IBM working with the Air Force. Every scheduled flight across American frontiers is recorded ahead of time on IBM punch cards, then fed into the SAGE computer. Now the computer can draw a picture of what is supposed to be in the sky at any moment. It continually compares this expected picture with the real picture as seen by radar. There's one now at the right of the screen. They call it a blip, unknown flying object. The officer fires a light gun at the target blip. This tells the computer to track the object. At the launching site, a long-range Beaumont missile is readied for firing. Now they ask the computer to calculate an intercept point. X marks the spot where the Bowmark missile would meet the moving target if fired immediately. The officer in charge makes the final decision. Fire. At the moment of launching, the Bowmark missile receives instructions from the IBM computer. As the missile screams toward target, radar keeps on tracking. With electronic control, the computer automatically adjusts the missile to meet any change in the target flight. There is no escape. Intercept.
1: In ops, we normally had airmen thirds, airmen seconds on the scopes. Now every scope had a full bird colonel watching the sweep go round and round. A colonel on a scope... It was unheard of. Our squadron commander was only a lieutenant colonel. He was the only one on base before. Now the place was crawling with them. Each of them had a headset and an open mic to NORAD. If they saw a missile lift off from Cuba, the word would be given to launch ours. A few minutes after the GO command, the United States would have sent a full retaliatory strike, not only at Cuba, but at Russia itself. A grim logic was
3: beginning to emerge. Nuclear disarmament was not achievable, yet nuclear war was unthinkable. By 1964, McNamara had concluded that his No Cities plan was a dangerous illusion War would only be avoided, he now thought, by the threat of mutual
1: suicide. The exciting part was that the first few people in the world to know that it was the end of the world would have been us sitting in that room. This little radar squadron in Thomasville, Alabama, a missile launch would break through our beam first on its way up. Then the Texas beam would see it. And finally, the folks in New Jersey, we were wrapped up in the technical aspects of this mission, so much so that the reality of what we were doing, or what might actually happen, was somewhat muted. We didn't speak about the gorilla in the closet. It was too big to deal with. The transmitter and receiver stations were roped off. No one was allowed to go in or out without permission. If something needed adjustment, we called it tweaking, one of those colonels would say, okay, you've got five minutes to tune whatever, but don't knock this thing off the air. Let me tell you, there's a lot of pressure on an 18-year-old kid. These guys are talking about launching ICBM missiles. And I'm in there turning dials trying to center up the transmit frequency, trying to peak the power across the bandwidth, all the while with the knowledge that every time you change something, it could cause a shutdown. I don't want to be the person to knock this transmitter off the air. Luckily for us, everything worked fine. President Kennedy has decided to put a naval blockade around Cuba the idea being to prevent any additional supplies or missiles being brought in. The fact is, they intended to prevent anything from being brought in. The day of the blockage, we just knew that the Russian ships were not going to stop. We were going to war. Everybody said so. We all waited and watched as the ships moved closer. At the moment of contact drew near, The tension on site was nearly off the scale. What would happen? Those on duty just kept busy. Those off were glued to TV sets in the rec room and barracks. No games, no frivolous activity. Just high pulse rates and genuine worry about one's family and the future. Masked by our youthful bravado, we were stoically quiet. It happened. They said Khrushchev blinked. But actually, Kennedy had agreed to take some missiles out of Turkey. Khrushchev. He ordered the ships to stop and turn around. Everyone breathed a collective sigh of relief. We were minutes away from all-out nuclear exchange with the Russians. Somehow, we had avoided it. The radar boys, as we like to call ourselves, Like to brag that not one single Russian made it past Thomasville, either. However, there was one night when we thought we were under attack. I was just getting off the swing shift at midnight. I'd stopped by the main gate to talk with Hayden, one of the MPs. He said he was about to go ride out back and check on Glenn, take him some coffee. I said I'd go along. I always liked a jeep ride. Due to the crisis, guards were posted around all the base perimeter, day and night. Glenn was way in the back by the water treatment facility. We drove up as close as we could. We had to walk the rest of the way. The jeep would not make it. The commander didn't want anybody driving on the grass, war or no war. So we walked. (laughs) The commander played golf back there. And it was important to him to keep the grass in as good a shape as possible. Anyway, it was maybe a hundred yards back to where Glenn was supposed to be. Hayden says to me, I hope that fool doesn't shoot us. He's just kidding. But it is dark. And his comment makes me wonder about it. We get closer and hear Glenn yell, HALT! We think he's talking to us, so we give the password for the day, which is Red Sox. The MPs had decided to name a different ball team every day. Glenn didn't respond, and we hear the distinctive sound of an M1 bolt being pulled back and a round being chambered into place. If you've ever heard that sound, you'll never forget it. Hayden says, hell, he just loaded up. We can't see them, but we hear him. Glenn says again, Halt, or I'll shoot. Now we're scared. Hey, Glenn, don't shoot. It's Hayden and Bowers. The thought had occurred to us that maybe he had seen something beyond the fence before we had gotten there. So we call out louder this time. Hey, Glenn, don't shoot. It's Hayden and Bowers. This time he hears us and he comes back to where we're at. He was partway around the side of one of the big water storage tanks. The rear fence has forest directly behind it, and a large cornfield on the left side of the base. Glenn comes towards us in a low crouch like he's afraid someone will see him. We ask in a whisper, what's going on? He says somebody's on the other side of the fence, trying to break in. Now all three of us are huddled together behind the tank wondering if we should just call for more troops. Just about then, a cow walks into view on the other side of the fence in the cornfield. Just doing what cows do best. This one was all alone, and he must have gotten out of somebody's pasture. What cow could resist a midnight snack in a cornfield? Especially if it's someone else's corn. corn. Corn, corn, corn. I asked Hayden if he thought we should check for Russian insignia. We laugh until it hurts. Glenn never lived it down. By morning, it was all over the base. When he came into breakfast, somebody cried out, Hey, Glenn! Shoot any of those Russian cows lately? Somebody else would add, That was probably a spy dressed up as a Russian cow. It went on like that for quite a while. I felt sorry for him because out there after midnight, all alone, I could very easily have done the same thing. I i guess that's why I didn't repeat the tale, but Hayden spread it around as if he knew some secret that he alone had been ordained to bring to everyone's attention. He took pleasure in it. He was one of those people that kind of liked to tear people down to make himself look good. Of course, the opposite's actually true, but that type never seemed to learn that. Everything looks so easy after sunup. The ghost, well, the ghost only show up after midnight. I don't think I will ever again have a chance to be a part of anything so important. With so much riding on what I did right or wrong, it was very scary and at the same time terribly exciting to know you were part of something this big. I mean really big. We stayed on alert for a couple more weeks until it was clear the Russians were removing their missiles from Cuba. The extra guards left, and things got back to normal. Well, actually better than our previous standard for normal. The radar ran properly now. A few missiles pointed your way can really help you focus the 698th was awarded a unit citation for our part in Operation Falling Leaves. That was the code name for the special radar coverage over Cuba. We all really felt like we had kicked butt. Those radar boys all walked a little taller. My father was in the Air Force during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that story was his recollection of the highmost point of the Cuban Missile Crisis when history tells us that we stood up to the Russians and they blinked. Although the truth is, behind the scenes, Kennedy agreed that the United States would take our missiles off of Russia's doorstep in Turkey, and in exchange, the Russians would take their missiles off of Cuba. Hmm. Seems so logical, doesn't it? If only we could think that way today.
0: Oh man, that 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 is a very interesting and apparently if you can read through the lines personal piece from the incredible true facts of space. And uh, while noted for a certain brand of absurdism, perhaps this reflects uh, a, a certain sort of absurdism, but uh, different. And yeah, but, uh, privileged. I, I'm a little bit uh, taken aback at the quality and the. the, the that is just top drawer material delivered in a top drawer manner and here i was going to read one of my things and i had a little sound effect you know just a field recording uh yeah i'll do that but maybe (laughs) maybe later (laughs) i don't think i'm gonna try to follow that one quite like directly up against we will will cleanse your palate (laughs) oh really that that was wonderful and uh yeah uh we next up as we uh talk about reading and writing which uh, read the reading of the writing oh man we have uh from over the sea in the uk doc Slees.
3: I recently rewatched Francois Truffaut's film adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit four five one made in nineteen sixty six. Its central conceit of a future where books are banned and burned because of the dangerous ideas they contain raises the question of whether a post literate society is possible. Obviously, before the advent of written language we had a pre literate society, but this existed in a far simpler world without our current levels of technology or complex social structures. It is these latter things that we think make literacy essential. It is how knowledge is disseminated and ideas communicated and developed. Modern society requires all manner of complex interactions which involve the use of the written word and physical documentation, or so it seems. Indeed, in both Bradbury's novel and Truffaut's film, the world isn't entirely illiterate written road signs for instance if you notice still exist and newspaper stories are printed but in the form of simple comic strips with the sort of basic dialogue and captions you'd expect from them it is in effect a dumbed down form of literacy now interestingly in the real world about the same time well in the same sort of time frame as the film was being produced The U.S. Army found itself having to resort to issuing instructional manuals for their newly introduced M16 rifle in comic strip form. Now, I've actually seen one of these these um, manuals and they were very crudely drawn with the absolute minimum of text. But but they effectively showed users exactly how the rifle should be cleaned, because the problem was the M16 was a more was more complex than the M14 it was replacing. And when first issued to Vietnam, where it was issued because it's much lighter than the M-14, um, it suffered a high incidence of jamming due to soldiers, particularly draftees, not cleaning them effectively and frequently enough. As you can imagine, in those conditions, hot, damp conditions, they're working frequently or wading through rice fields and the like. You can imagine the sort of filth and dirt that got into them. Now, well, that's an easy issue to rectify. You know, you clean the weapon more more frequently. The problem was that the low levels of literacy that the army found among a high proportion of its conscripts meant the conventional written manual simply wouldn't be effective. You know, the only way, hence the cartoon format being the only way they felt they could get that message out there effectively and quickly to all of their soldiers, just by putting it in that form of a cartoon strip. Now, shocking though that might seem that as late as the 1960s, one of the world's wealthiest countries harbors such levels of illiteracy, I doubt very much it's confined to the US, and I strongly suspect from personal experience that literacy levels remain patchy. It isn't that the vast majority of people in the developed world can't read and write. It's just that a large proportion of them have very weak literacy skills. Part of the problem is that increasingly, we live in a world where this offers no disadvantage. You can get away with it. While the internet, for instance, might have started as a primarily text-based medium, visuals have subsequently become king. Just look at the most popular sorts of apps, video-based YouTube or photo-based Instagram. And much social media also places a big emphasis upon posting images with absolute minimal text. And Twitter, while well, Twitter is all about posting in the fewest number of characters and to hell with spelling and punctuation. Google increasingly pushes this aspect of the web and its responses to search queries. YouTube videos, YouTube being another uh, Google property naturally, frequently dominate the first half dozen results. This is particularly true when searching for solutions to technical issues, you know, even something as simple as, I don't know, unblocking a toilet or changing a washer on a tap. The YouTube instructional video, usually made by an amateur, is now considered the best result. But it isn't just the web in the workplace training is increasingly in the form of instructional videos or interactive image dominated learning tools which can be delivered via the workstation to the learner's desk no need for those training sessions in a classroom with a live instructor who probably knows what they're talking about and written handouts you could peruse at your leisure you just sit at your desk and follow the on-screen instructions for a set time period because they all have a set time period they're meant to take so I know this this from experience in my last job that's what training consisted of you did these bloody interact supposedly interactive exercises the interactive uh, aspect being absolutely minimal. they had the minimum of text in them the maximum of images they were incredibly simplistic and they used to drive me up the wall but That was considered a more cost-effective way of training people. And also, it broke down the job into the most simplistic functions it possibly could. But more on that later. So, does this constitute a post-literate society along the lines of Fahrenheit 451? Well, not quite perhaps, but it does make the book and film seem highly prescient. It feels more as if we're sliding back toward the pre-industrial era of of literacy, where it was not universal. Generally, only the wealthy were fully literate because only they could afford the sort of education that taught it. You know, could teach you to read and write properly. Most others were at best semi-literate, able to perform the most basic of literate functions. You know, like read very basic instructions. like you know do not touch dangerous you know <laughs> that sort of thing maybe sign a signature although still it was very prevalent for people to just sign with their mark with an x maybe write their name maybe in block capitals and perhaps recognize their name when it is written but most others as i say most was, but with the industrial revolution and its demand for more skilled workers. Literary levels had to rise so that most workers had at least functional reading and writing skills. But nowadays, with work increasingly being de-skilled by technology, as I say, the breaking down even of office work into into the most simple components they can that you have to follow, initiative, things like that, you don't need that is a set um, template for doing everything. Anyway, as I say, all this means the functional requirements of literacy in the workplace seem to be much lower now. Of course, there's always a, there's also a political dimension to all of this. Literacy levels ultimately are dictated by educational standards, which in turn are dictated by elect, our elected governments. Now, the cynic can be might suspect that it's actually political policy to reduce educational levels. I mean, a less literate populace might well be easier to control. I mean, they wouldn't, for instance, be able to access those dangerous ideas in books, relying instead upon the much simplified and manipulated moving wallpaper of TV for information. Or increasingly nowadays, not TV news necessarily, but the web again, which is even more Manipulated even more partisan, even more simplified in its reporting of issues. Could such a decline in literacy result in a revival of the oral tradition of storytelling, as posited in the climax of the film version of Fire 451? Wonders. I mean, the ending of the film sees the book people memorizing their personal choice of book before burning them to keep them, you know, to make them safe because just possessing a book makes you a criminal. And so they memorise the book and can repeat it upon request to anybody who wants to read that book. And they pass on to someone else when they, they, they begin to you know, grow old and ill. They get someone else to memorise the book from their retelling of it, so it lives on. I mean, after all, the telling of stories and their memorization and retelling in this way by other bards was for thousands of years the standard way of distributing fiction and knowledge. I mean, long before some scribe wrote down, uh, wrote down the Odyssey and Iliad, wrote them down, both uh, the Odyssey, Odyssey and Iliad attributed to Homer existed in this oral form, for example. Well, while the, while the Celts had no written tradition relying instead upon oral histories with the result actually and this is the disadvantage of the oral tradition the result is that what we know about them is frequently based upon what others like the romans who had a written tradition wrote of them because the written word well unless someone burns it has a tendency (laughs) to be more permanent but the point about the oral tradition is that both Ancient, ancient Greece, and we're talking, you know, really ancient Greece before the days of, you know, the great philosophers and writers we know from ancient Athens and the various Celtic kingdoms scattered across northern Europe, Western and northern Europe, they, they all function perfectly well as quite complex societies without our extensive literary tradition. So it does make you wonder, you know, if as many fear reading and writing are in decline, at least reading and writing for a large proportion of the populace, even if those are in decline, then it doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> falling into some kind of new cultural dark age. It's not quite that bad. We had these oral traditions long before the written word. And increasingly, um, we have people these days, kids going through education, who are labeled as, and I say labeled, it's not because I doubt these things exist, it's just that sometimes, as you saw, kids with ADHD, uh, dyslexia, often then are shunted off into. educational streams where they are only um, taught literacy um, to a functional level usually because it's considered they have too many learning difficulties for them to, to fully grasp it um, which is rather unfair really um, I know the young girl she's in the teens he's a lovely smart kid and um, she had, well, she's been diagnosed as having ADHD and dyslexia and is homeschooled because of her problems. And sadly, oh, think it's sad for her ambition like with, with, with English language and, and uh, so on, is simply to be functional in it. She thinks so sad, she's clearly a very bright kid, um, but that's what she's been conditioned to believe. That that's all, she, and because it's, she does find it difficult she's very good in other subjects but there you go um it's another pressure on the concepts of universal literacy we have these days but there you go those are some of my thoughts on reading and writing and on that i will say in the oral tradition back to you pq
0: well yeah i don't think they were ever trying to uh Create too many people who like reasoned and asked a lot of questions when they established public education. Uh, I think they left that for the ones who could go to like a St. John's University, you know, a place where it's mostly uh, a fine education that may not even have a practical use outside of academia uh, or to make a living at all i mean i just recently i mean i'd been taught this in school and i never even thought about it but in ancient rome as a full citizen you had slaves that did all the work and you had all of the time to uh enjoy the arts and participate in various uh activities and forums and well at least that's how it looks on paper in my head something like that sustaining itself seems a little tricky but humans do some interesting things and of course in the long run it certainly wasn't sustainable to the point where i don't think it's happened again on any scale so there's that uh, and we have this uh, military uh, theme rolling along in the background for some reason. But uh, other than that, uh, even me, and uh, maybe this makes me sound a little goofy, but for physical instructions, like if I needed instructions how to take apart and put a rifle back together,
4: you betcha,
0: I a comic book a bunch of physical drawings with little arrows and all the rest of that are going to teach even me with all my fancy words um and it's the reason for that more so than anything is if you did it in text with a very few pictures you would then have to teach the name of every single part and every single part of one of those uh, guns has a specific name that m- only somebody who is into guns is generally familiar with that whole uh, lexicon of nomenclature oh yes that's me my i'm the lexicon to nomenclature at your service here on the overnight central but yeah uh you got that um let's see i got something else written here yeah well to complete to convey like complex ideas words are better and more useful but i you know and and it is sad that more people don't read and don't read literature and can't but especially with the other choices available to them as far as you have some leisure time. I mean, even if you want to be so-called upper literary, you got four million masterpiece theater adaptations. There is a vast amount of high-quality material that while it isn't as good as reading the book... Uh, in certain ways, because it provides a visual aspect, um, there are some advantages. And, hey, it's easier. And uh, ease. Oh, yes, we love our ease. That's something uh, we should definitely uh, keep thinking about all the time. Make it easier, because then we can do more, I think, is the basic idea of easier if you're less stressed and believe me people I, I, it's just amazing everybody gets to sit home and i don't think anybody's any less stressed yeah, I, yeah I, i'm just kidding that that was comedic that is let's let's not uh you can put the torches back away at least till the next time ah am, am i gonna yes i think i'm gonna try to uh, read this here to you this is uh, from the golden age of Otis career and uh, did I close this? No, it's over there. Yellow parka vision. The new man stood at a street corner wearing a yellow parka although there was scarcely a cloud in the sky much less a cloud with rain inside. There was nobody else at the street corner, as it was not at a popular intersection. In fact, nobody had spent a significant amount of time at this particular intersection for a good ten years. There was once a newsstand, but now a fenced-in lot of rubble and debris with a myriad of weeds had taken its place. If asked, the man could offer no good reason for why he had decided to put on the yellow parka he barely ever wore and then walk ten blocks to spend some quality alone time in the quiet afternoon quiet for the big city save for a few passing buses even traffic moved elsewhere as a bus passed the man sensed watching eyes but was not sure of course whether this was in his head or Was he truly in touch with the invisible lines which went zigging from the direction of the bus onto his position? Not that it mattered much. He didn't give it much thought. His thoughts, mostly, were swirling in fixation about heading to a mountain he once climbed during a summer of his tenth or eleventh year. The man was in summer camp, enjoying himself mostly, except for those periodic bouts of homesickness one having hit him at the beginning of this hike. Not that he missed any specific thing, merely the comfort of the familiar and the freedom to move about in it. The memory of the hike is hazy and distant. Mostly, he recalled, walking across a narrow segment in a diagonal, zooming up the slopes, free of switchbacks. Significant, is that the memory is seen from the viewpoint of an outside observer as if a camera had been filming the man, who was a boy, hiking along with his fellow campers. The man's brain worked like that as he stood at the corner in his yellow parka, cycling through random areas of his past. Maybe I've reached the end of my life, the man thought, but I see no white light. At that moment he looked across the street to see an apparently escaped dog, a bit of its broken chain trailing from its shiny, new-looking collar, peeing under a lone little tree. How can I possibly be lonesome, the man thought. I'm married, have a job and friends to go out with, and I love bowling as my guilty pleasure, and yet here I am, not at work for the afternoon, standing at a street corner, not even leaning on a post he laughed never say chuckled someone else must be surely controlling me just then the man suffered a vision very colorful and loud one of a large robot walking down the street into traffic if any had been approaching on top of the robots head was a top hat decorated in swirls with layered stripes so bright that they burned the eyes The hat stretched some ten feet into the sky. Too many Japanese animes and mangas, no doubt. In an attempt to shake his brain loose from this image, the man moved his head from side to side and when that failed, he jumped up and down, exerting more and more energy until he eventually collapsed himself onto a nearby lawn in a dizzying fit of laughter. When he regained his composure, he found that the robot was still making his way down the street, hat-poking high up into the sky. Now the robot's back was towards the man, who slowly began to rise back to his feet. He made his way back to the perch he had found earlier, not taking his eyes off the robot as it disappeared, click by click. Some things you just don't fight the man said aloud. He remained at the street corner for another hour, watching cars and buses pass, until a breeze made the hair on his arms perk up, as if it were about to launch loose from the grip of his skin. Yeah, and uh, with that, Let's see what uh, Frank Edward Nora might have to say there.
4: Do they still talk about the three R's? Reading, writing, and arithmetic? Which, of course, is kind of a joke because only one of them starts with the letter R. Writing, of course, starts with the letter W. And arithmetic starts with the letter A. But the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, kind of represents, uh, I think, people's view that uh, the education of children should provide them with basic skills and some of the, uh, the extra stuff, uh, the, the sort of indoctrination, brainwashing, what have you, is not really shouldn't be the main function of a school. But of course, we live in a society where all the citizens are mentally conditioned to some extent, uh, but should learn how to read and write, basically. And I do think, unfortunately, a lot of uh, school systems in different areas uh, you know, people can graduate from from high school, for example, uh, and uh, uh, you know, like be functionally illiterate. It's something that is really sad because reading and writing is a very important skill, even today when our technology has uh, has moved um, past the, ne- the you know, ru- uh, the printed page being the main way of conveying information from the past to the future, right? Uh, but reading and writing is basically What is it? And when I was really thinking about what it is, of course, one aspect of it is is a real mystery, right? Uh, The part that's not as mysterious that we can understand is that that we have thoughts in our head, and we have this cognition, we we think, therefore we are. And um, knowing a language to speak, right, beyond reading and writing, speaking, we can um, articulate It's not just articulating. It's we're able to encode what's going on in our head, our cognition, and transfer it to another person. Because one of the hallmarks of this place we're living now, which might not be a hallmark of other worlds that are out there if they exist, is that each human being is essentially cut off from one another. Cut off from one another. Cut off from one another. Why can't I say that? Cut off from one another. And um, in general, if you're standing next to a person, um, you really have very limited information what's going on inside their head, right? You could read body language, facial expressions, etc. But in general, you don't you don't know. We're c- closed off to one another. Now, of course, it does seem that uh, there is a psychic as psychic communication. Um, that I've experienced to a very limited degree, um, but not that you have complete access to another person, but that you could uh, have a kind of a psychic communication with someone, which would be nonverbal, but I think the psychic communication at the level I'm thinking of is still an encoding of information, right? Um, Like, so uh, writing... And reading is, a, a, I believe, a direct extension of speaking, right? So speaking is, you know, we think something and we know a language and we use the words for it. And another person hears it and understands it. Similar sense, uh, reading and writing, uh, you, write, you, you can write down the words that instead of speaking them. And now they're much more permanent because when you just speak, before the invention of audio recording, which is what I'm doing right now, uh, the, the, the audio would not last, right? It would, it would reverberate in the air, and, uh, and then it would be gone. And uh, it would only be in someone's memory, right? Whereas uh, ink on paper is much more permanent. A, a, a solution can last for hundreds of years, if not thousands, and can be copied down again uh, verbatim and to preserve it. Or, in the case of sort of like the Rig Veda chanted verbatim over the course of hundreds if not thousands of years to be, to preserve it. Well, that's one way of preserving something in audio is to chant it over and over again, but that doesn't sound very healthy now, does it? it? Sounds like it'll drive you mad saying this... reciting a book over and over again your entire life like those dudes did over there in India, back in like the 100s or something. Don't quote me on that. I, Rig, Rig Veda, There's It's something like that was going on. But anyway... Um we understand that right different languages have different words for things you know you might say a book or a, li- a libro you know but it's or libra whatever it does means the same thing right so these are coding methods for understandings that transcend language right or do they what is the what is the connection between language and cognition truly language and consciousness are they completely disconnected or are they one and the same? I think that's a good question. Um, but think about cognition, thought, imagination, the world inside your head, right? Um, how does that work? And as we've talked about on recent centrals, there is a, what clearly seems to be, an outside world that we perceive through the senses, and then we have an interior world, which, among other things, can model the physical world and we can run, we, we can simulate all different situations in our mind, um, which is an essential tool to navigating the world around us, right? You could say that any symbol from anything you see visually or hear could be completely meaningless, right? Uh, we need to ascribe meaning to things specifically to get by, to survive, and to thrive, to interact, right? So, you know, what I'm looking at now, the a porch, a sidewalk, a lamp, a car, a car at rest, a car in motion, like all these things, right? I understand them as meaning, right? So, when I'm speaking, like what I'm doing right now, I'm speaking, right? And I, Or I... I could write down a similar thing as what I'm saying right now, right? So what's happening is, I'm thinking stuff, uh, speaking on the topic of reading and writing, and um, coming up with angles of approaching the topic, and I'm speaking, I'm saying the words. So where where are these words coming from? Really? And that's where the mystery comes in, because I don't think we really know even though we do it all the time i don't think we really know where this stuff is coming from right which it's sort of like this feels like a dance you're you're sort of playing with or dancing with uh, a system right that uh, you sort of want or you have a will towards doing something in this case speaking on a certain topic and then you just sort of start doing it where is that coming from right so it also do with deal with uh, cognition that is the process, thought process, and consciousness is another question: Is consciousness separate from cognition, or not? the uh, The act of observation, right? Could there be an act con- uh, of observation, which the nature of consciousness and the nature of an observing uh, thing, <laughs> for lack of a better word, an observing agent? Um, is there, right? Could, could there be observation without cognition? That is, is it observing cognition or is it cognition? You see what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, writing down symbols on paper or on a computer screen, um, again, can be meaningless. If it's a language you don't know, um, you know, like if, if I'm looking at French or Spanish, I can pick up a lot of the meaning that I have some background in it, and it's kind of similar to English in some ways. But if, for example, one of the Indian, the Hindi or the Bengali or, or Kaneda, Canada, Canada, uh, you look at that writing, I have really have no familiarity with it. I, I can't um, really gain any information from that. So I can be reading something that's written in an Indian script, for example, uh, and uh, I could look over the characters, but I wouldn't be receiving that that stream of meaning, right? Because I don't have that encoding, but if you do have the encoding, how does it provide meaning? It's just a bunch of little shapes on, uh, that that you see. It's because of your imagination, your your mind. You know, I, this is something that's very—it's very frustrating because if you say imagination, it sounds like something frivolous, right? If you say mind, that that could mean a million different things to a million different people, right? Inside our head again, like is—is is it inside our head? I mean, it's—I mean, there's this is such a confusing topic. Um, these birds—they're—they're they're talking in some way, um, but essentially, inside your mind is a system very similar to what's inside my mind, right? And if you know the encoding system, the language, and if you live in a similar world. To whoever wrote what was written, right? Those, uh, those words on the page that were written, and you read them, are reconstructing a pattern that was in the writer's mind, in your mind, right? We are, we have this internal system. We don't know how we have it, but we just have it, and it's really incredible if you think about it, because the patterns in my mind, which I am currently encoding with my voice and speaking, if you understand English and you have lived in and inhabit a world similar to the one I'm inhabiting, you can understand what I'm saying. Because the patterns in my mind are being recreated in your mind. Not 100%, but close enough that you get the idea. right? So Each of us has this incredible system. Why don't we just, for example, fiction, why don't we just make up our own stories to simulate our imagination? Why would we need someone else's? I think because to make up your own story for some reason is very uh, resource-intensive, whereas someone else spent that energy to create the story, and all you need to do is read it, so you're getting sort of a free ride, a free ride uh, of your imagination um, using this system that we have, it would seem... Wouldn't it seem to make more sense that we don't need other people to write stories, that we can just have endless flights of fantasy inside our own head that are completely engaging, immersive? We don't need any fiction. We don't need any anyone else's input. We just have our own adventures inside our own minds. But somehow it doesn't work like that. The the expense of coming up with a story. And I've I've... Talked a lot about you know my own experiences with writing fiction and how expensive it is from a resource perspective as a human being. To the point that I've given it up because what I'm doing doing audio shows I feel I I can produce better work without such a, such a cost to personally. But there's not there, absolutely writing can be. Uh, non-fictional, but the fictional writing is amazing because you can create w- things that don't exist and and have them play out in someone's mind uh, it really is an incredible situation and uh, it is very mysterious and I was uh, I was looking at this uh, webpage, remember I was talking about this webpage that kind of relates to all this um, if I can bring it up here coming up soon here I'm gonna read it. I wrote it. Now I'm gonna read it. Um, there's a web page called "Unusual, Neglected, and/or Lost Literature," and kind of ironically, that page itself is now lost. But I preserved it. Uh, I, fa- I, I have. In, if you just search like "unu," the word "unusual" in, in on onsug.com, you'll get. You'll get. I have links to uh, Internet Archive uh, backups of that website, and it's this huge list of just interesting, weird literature. And uh, from that list, I found a book that is, uh, I would say, not necessarily, like, super obscure, but uh, I really have never heard of it. It's Fantasties by uh, A Fairy Romance for Men and Women by George MacDonald. And this was written in 1858. And it's considered uh, by some to be the first (coughs) fantasy work of fiction uh, aimed at adults. Right? Obviously fairy tales existed long before this, but it was considered to be more for children. I don't know about myths and legends. Those are awfully fantastic and they must predate 1858, but anyway, fantasties P H A N T A S T E S Fantasties. And um <coughs> I, I found it on Project Gutenberg, of course. And uh I was skimming through it. I figured we'll I'm gonna start reading uh you know cuz i wanted this is the reading portion i want to start reading uh it looked like chapter 10 was a good place to start so i guess spoiler alert if you plan on reading this but <coughs> i don't really feel like reading the whole thing but i do want to get some some of the vibe of it you know chapter 10 here we go <coughs> it starts with a little poem let me get situated here <coughs> Eden, from Eden. Sorry. From Eden. Why am I having trouble here? From Eden's bowers, the full fed rivers flow to guide the outcasts to the land of woe. Our earth, one little toiling streamlet, yields to guide the wanderers to the happy fields. It's kind of an interesting sentiment. It actually relates to what I was talking about on the Overnightscape the other day. How. This is that we're in one tiny part of a huge exploration, right? Our Earth, one little toiling streamlet, yields to guide the wanderers to the happy. F- so our world is one little, little substream of this of this giant uh, river. Anyway, let's get to the story, shall we? <coughs> in progress. <coughs> After leaving this village, where I, I had rested for nearly a week. I traveled through a desert region of of dry sand and glittering rocks, peopled principally by goblin fairies. When I first entered their domains, and indeed whenever I fell in with another tribe of them, they began mocking me with offered handfuls of gold and jewels, making hideous grimaces at me, and performing the most antic homage, as if they thought I expected reverence, and meant to humor me like a maniac. But ever, as soon as one cast his eyes on the shadow behind me... Oh, so I think I saw that there's some weird demon shadow following this guy around. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's just a note. But ever, as... He, this is a guy who's traveling through this fantasy world, all right? <laughs> anyway. But ever, as soon as one cast his eyes on the shadow behind me, he made a wry face, partly of pity, partly of contempt and looked ashamed, as if he had been caught doing something inhuman. Then, throwing down his handful of gold, and ceasing all his grimaces, he stood aside to let me pass in peace, and made signs to his companions to do the like. I had no inclination to observe them much, for the shadow was in my heart as well as at my heels. I walked listlessly and almost hopelessly along, till I arrived one day at a small spring which, bursting cool from the heart of a sun-heated rock, flowed somewhat southwards from the direction I had been taking. I drank of this spring and found myself wonderfully refreshed. A kind of love to the cheerful little stream arose in my heart. It was born in a desert but it seemed to say to itself i will flow and sing and lave my banks till i make desert a paradise i thought i could not do better than follow it and see what it made of it so soon with the stream so so down with the stream i went over rocky lands burning with sunbeams but the rivulet flowed not far before a few blades of grass appeared on its banks, and then here and there a stunted bush. Sometimes it disappeared altogether underground, and after I had wandered some distance, as near as I could guess in the direction it seemed to take, it would, I would suddenly hear it again singing, sometimes far away to my right or left, amongst new rocks, over which it made new cataracts of watery melodies the verdure verdure, verdure, on its banks increased as it flowed. Other streams joined it, and at last, after many days' travel, I found myself one gorgeous summer evening, resting by the side of a broad river, with a glorious horse chestnut tree towering above me, and dropping its blossoms, milk-white and rosy-red, all about me. As I sat, a gush of joy sprang forth in my heart and overflowed at my eyes. Through my tears, the whole landscape glimmered in such bewildering loveliness that I felt as if I were entering fairyland for the first time, and some loving hand were waiting to cool my head and a loving word to warm my heart. Roses, wild roses everywhere... So plentiful were they. They not only perfumed the air; they seemed to dye it with a faint rose hue. The color floated abroad, with the scent, and clom, clomb c l o m b, and spread clom. Listen, there's a lot of vocabulary words in this in this story. Okay, clom and spread, until the whole west blushed and glowed with the gathered incense of roses and my heart fainted with longing in my bosom. But I could see the spirit of the earth, as I saw once the indwelling woman of the beech tree, and my beauty of the pale marble. I should be content, content, oh, how gladly I would die in the light of her eyes. Yea, I would cease to be, if that would bring me one word of love from the one mouth. The twilight sank around and enfolded me with sleep. I slept as I had not slept for months. I did not awake till late in the morning, when, refreshed in body and mind, I rose as from the death that wipes out the sadness of life and then dies itself in the new morrow. Again I followed the stream, climbing a steep rocky bank that hemmed it in, now waiting through long grasses and wild flowers in its path now through meadows and anon through woods that crowded down to the very lip of the water at length in a nook of the river gloomy with the weight of overhanging foliage and still and deep as a soul in which the torrent eddies of pain have hollowed a great gulf had hollowed a great gulf and then subsiding in violence have left it full of emotionless fathomless sorrow i saw a little boat lying so still was the water there that the boat needed no fastening it lay as if someone had just stepped ashore and would return and would in a moment return but as there were no signs of presence and no track through the thick bushes And, moreover, as I was in fairyland, where one does very much as he pleases, I forced my way to the brink, stepped onto the boat, pushed it, and with the help of the tree branches, out into the stream, lay down in the bottom, and let my boat and me float whither the stream would carry us. I seemed to lose myself in the great flow of sky above me unbroken in its infinitude, except when now and then, coming nearer the shore at a bend in the river, a tree would sweep its mighty head silently above mine and glide away back into the past nevermore to fling its shadow over me. I fell asleep in this cradle in which Mother Nature was was rocking her weary child. And while I slept, the sun slept not, but went round his arched way. When I awoke, he slept in the waters, and I went on my silent path between a round silvery moon, and a pale moon looked up from the floor of the great blue cave that lay in the abysmal silence beneath. Why are all reflections lovelier than what we call the reality? Not so grand or so strong it may be, but always lovelier. Fair as is the gliding sloop on the shining sea. The wavering, trembling, unresting sail below is fairer still. Yea, the reflecting ocean itself, reflected in the mirror, has a wondrousness about its waters that somewhat vanishes when I turn towards itself. All mirrors are magic mirrors. The commonest room is a room in a poem when I turn to the glass. And this reminds me, while I write, of a strange story which I I read in the fairy place and of which I will try to make a feeble memorial in its place. In whatever way it may be accounted for, of one thing we may be sure, that this feeling is no cheat, for there is no cheating in nature and the simplest unsought feelings of the soul. There must be truth involved in it, though we may be in part, though we may but in part lay hold of the meaning. Even the memories of past pain are beautiful, and past delights, though beheld only through clefts in the gray clouds of sorrow, are lovely as fairyland. But how have I wandered into the deeper fairyland of the soul, while as yet I only float towards the fairy place, the fairy palace of fairyland. The moon, which is the lovelier memory or reflex of the down gone sun, the joyous day seen in the faint mirror of the brooding night, has rapt me away. I sat up in the boat. Gigantic forest trees were above me. Through which, like a silver snake Twisted and twined the great river The little waves, when I moved in the boat Heaved and fell with a plash as of molten silver Breaking the image of the moon into a thousand morsels Fusing again into one as the ripples of laughter die Into the still face of joy The sleeping woods in undefined massiveness The water that flowed in it sleep, and above all the enchantress moon, which has cast them all with her pale eye into the charmed slumber, sank into my soul, and I felt as if I had died in a dream, and should never more awake. From this I was partly aroused by a glimmering of white, that through the trees on the left vaguely crossed my vision as I gazed upwards. But the trees again hid the object, and at the moment some strange melodious bird took up its song and sang, not an ordinary bird song. See, thank you birds for illustrating the story here. The birds in reality here are chirping as well. Um, Not an ordinary, took up its song and sang, not an ordinary bird song with constant repetitions of the same melody, but what sounded like a continuous strain in which one thought was expressed, deepening in intensity as it evolved in progress. It sounded like a welcome already overshadowed with the coming farewell. As in all sweetest music, a tinge of sadness was in every note. Nor do we know how much the pleasures of, even of life we owe to the intermingled sorrows. Joy cannot unfold the deepest truths, Although deepest truth must be deepest joy. Cometh white-robed sorrow, stooping and wan, And flingeth wide the door she may not enter. Almost we linger with sorrow for very love. As the song concluded, the stream bore my little boat With a gentle sweep round a bend of the river, And lo, on a broad lawn, which rose from the water's edge with a long green slope to a clear elevation from which the trees receded on all sides, stood a stately palace glimmering ghostly in the moonshine. It seemed to be built throughout of the whitest marble. There was no reflection of moonlight from its windows. There seemed to be none. So there was no cold glitter, only, as I said, a ghostly shimmer. Numberless shadows tempered the shrine, from column and balcony and tower, for everywhere galleries ran along the face of the buildings, wings were extended in many directions, and numberless openings, through which moonbeams vanished into the interior, and which served both for doors and windows. Had their separate balconies in front, communicating with a common gallery that rose, on its own pillars. Of course, I did not discover all this from the river and in the moonlight, but, though I was there for many days, I did not succeed in mastering the inner topography of the building, so extensive and complicated was it. Here I wished to land, but the boat had no oars on board. However, I found that a plank serving for a seat was unfastened. And with that, I brought the boat boat to the bank and scrambled on shore. Deep, soft turf sank beneath my feet as I went up the ascent towards the palace. When I reached it, I saw that it it stood on a great platform of marble, with an ascent by broad stairs of the same all round it. Arrived on the platform, I found there was an extensive outlook over the forest, which, however, was rather veiled. Which, however, was rather veiled. Which was rather veiled than revealed by the moonlight. Entering by a wide gateway, but without gates, into an inner court surrounded on all sides by great marble pillars supporting galleries above. I saw a large fountain of porphyry. Wait, what the hell. P O P P O R P H Y R Y, a fountain of porphyry in the middle. Okay. Uh, throwing up a lofty column of water, which fell with a noise, as if, a noise as of the fusion of all sweet sounds into a basin beneath, overflowing which it ran into a single channel toward the interior of the building. Although the moon was by this time so low in the west that not a ray of her light fell into the court cool bird songs over the height of the surrounding buildings yet was the court lighted by a second reflex from the sun of other lands for the top of the column of water just as it spread to fall caught the moonbeams and like a great pale lamp Hung high in the night air, threw a dim memory of light, as it were, over the court below. This court was paved in diamonds of white and red marble. According to my custom, since I entered Fairyland, of taking for a guide whatever I first found moving in any direction, I followed the stream from the basin of the fountain. It led me to a great open door, beneath the ascending steps of which it ran through a low arch and disappeared entering here i found myself in a great hall surrounded with white pillars and paved with black and white this i could see by the moonlight which from the other side streamed through open windows into the hall <clears throat> it's height i could only see i could it's height i could not distinctly see as soon as i entered i had the feeling so common to me in the woods that there were others there besides myself, though I could see no one, and heard no sound to indicate a presence. Since my visit to the Church of Darkness, my power of seeing fairies of the highest orders had gradually diminished, until it had almost ceased. But I could frequently believe in their presence while unable to see them. Still, although I had company, and doubtless of a safe kind, it seemed rather dreary to spend the night in an empty marble hall, however beautiful, especially as the moon was near the going down and it would soon be dark. So I began at the place where I entered and walked round the hall looking for some door or passage that might lead me that might lead me to a more hospitable chamber. As I walked, I was deliciously haunted with the feeling that Behind some one of the seemingly innumerable pillars, one who loved me was waiting for me. Then I thought she was following me from pillar to pillar as I went along, but no arms came out of the faint faint moonlight, and no sigh assured me of her presence. At length I came upon an open corridor, into which I turned, notwithstanding that, in doing so, I left the light behind. Along this, I walked with outstretched hands, groping my way, till, arriving at another corridor, which seemed to strike off at right angles to that in which I was, I saw at the end of a faintly glimmering light, sorry, I saw at the end a faintly glimmering light, too pale even for moonshine, resembling rather a stray phosphorescence. However, where everything was white, a little light went a great way. So I walked on to the end, and a long corridor it was. When I came up to the light, I found that it proceeded from what looked like silver letters upon a door of ebony. And to my surprise, even in the home of wonder itself, the letters formed the words, "The Chamber of Sir Anodos," and this guy's name is Anodos, or Anodos. That—that's. I, I remember reading that. The, this character speaking is Anodos. The Chamber of Sir Anodos, Anodos, <laughs> like no Remember those caffeine pills? Yeah. <laughs> Sir Nodos, the caffeine knight. Yeah. Anyway, although I had yet no right to the honors of a knight I ventured to conclude that the chamber was indeed intended for me and, opening the door without hesitation I entered. Any doubt as to whether I was right in doing so was soon dispelled. What to my dark eyes seemed a blaze of light burst upon me. Sorry, I'm getting messages here. (laughs) Covering up the text. I can't read if I can't... Hold on. Uh... A fire of large pieces of some sweet-scented wood, supported by dogs of silver, was burning on the hearth, and a bright lamp stood on the table in the midst of a plentiful meal, apparently awaiting my arrival. But what surprised me more than all was that the room was in every respect a copy of my own room, the room whence the little stream from my basin had led me into fairyland, there was the very carpet of grass and moss and daisies which I had myself designed, the curtains of pale blue silk that fell like a cataract over the windows, the old-fashioned bed with the chintz furniture on which I had slept from my boyhood. Now I shall sleep, I said to myself. My shadow dares not come here. I sat down at the table and began to help myself to the good things before me with confidence and now i found as in many instances before how true the fairy tales are for i was waited on all the time of my meal by invisible hands i had scarcely to do more than look towards anything i wanted when it was brought to me uh, sorry anything i wanted when it was brought me just as if it had come to me of itself my glass was kept filled with the wine I had chosen, until I looked towards another bottle or decanter, when a fresh glass was substituted and the other wine supplied. When I had eaten and drank more heartily and joyfully than ever since I entered Fairyland, the hall was removed by several attendants, of whom some were male and some female, as I thought I could distinguish from the way the dishes were lifted from the table, and the motion with which they were carried out of the room. As soon as they were all taken away, I heard a sound as of the shutting of a door, and knew that I was left alone. I sat long by the fire, meditating, and wondering how it would all end. And when at length wearied with thinking, I betook myself to my own bed, it was half with hope that when I awoke in the morning, I should awake not only in my own room, but also in my own, but not only in my own room, but in my own castle also. And that I should walk out upon my native soil and find that fairyland was, after all, only a vision of the night. The sound of the falling waters of the fountain floated me into oblivion. That is chapter 10 Wow <clears throat> so yeah that was great I, you know I, I had only skimmed that chapter that's a pretty cool book uh, if you look on the Wikipedia page it actually says that Cs Lewis the creator of Narnia uh, that this was the first like fantasy book he read I think when he was like 16 this book is uh, was 164 years old this book uh, and he said it really opened his mind and basically I think probably inspired him to create Narnia and all that um, but let's just think about this right 164 years ago this guy's from Scotland right Where I'm sitting here in New Jersey in the year 2022 164 years in the future same language right um, a couple words here and there I'm not familiar with. What was that one? Perif- per- per- periphery or something? Uh, very few words. You know, you could always look them up in a dictionary or online. Um, but, right, as I read that, you were creating those scenes in your mind, right? And how do you know what is a boat? What is a river? What is moonlight? What is marble, right? The world, George MacDonald, was that his name? Yeah, was living in. 164 years ago in Scotland and wherever I'm living here in New Jersey and you're living wherever these are all concepts that we're familiar with right trees forests fairy lands the Sun and the moon right it's it's all already in there it's just being stimulated by the by the words on the page so that shows you the power of, of writing something down and then someone reading it in the future and it was weird, you know, cuz like reading out loud something I'm not you're not familiar with, right? There's there's a lot going on there, you know. I'm sort of slowly so, sort of sort of scanning ahead because depending on what goes on later later in the sentence, you have to change the way you say it earlier in the sentence, right? And I had to correct myself a number of times there, you know, uh because right, you can't quite tell if it's a longer sentence like what's what's kind of the uh what's the angle of this sentence, you know? Where should the stresses be, and what what what? What's uh, the point being made, right? But and yeah, in general, uh, you know, it's reading out loud is similar to reading silently, um, but you're just using the voice. Listen, this is all very advanced uh, systems that we all have: reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yep, the three R's. But yeah, that was a cool story, and yeah, you know, I kind of, I always have urges to write fiction, but fink, Fink. fiction. <laughs> it's uh, there's stories about like jerky people, Finktion, Yes, there you go, like Huckleberry Fink. I was actually uh, looking at some old uh, sick magazines on the Internet Archive. These sort of Alfred, Alfred E. Newman wannabe Huckleberry Fink. Yes. Anyway,
0: <laughs> just some thoughts on reading and writing. Back to you, Peaky. Oh yes. I'm back. Oh, this is, this was an incredible and fabulous C.S. Lewis, and all of these neat ideas and uh, uh, radar. I am realizing that radar is a recurring theme in uh, my connections, like one degree away. Gene Shepard, during World War Two, apparently worked it. Uh, In radar at some sort of radar station working with that equipment. My business partner uh, in Rhode Island when I was in Providence, uh, his father, Jefferson Borden II, was one of the people who worked for a company named Raytheon during World War II and helped develop uh, radar. From his stories, anyways, and now Chad Bowers and uh, his uh, father, I'm assuming, and his story of, uh, of this, this is all just all this wonderful synchronicity and words and language and writing. Yeah, I'm, I'm I am satisfied with what we accomplished today. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as well and are inspired now to think, hey, hey, maybe I would like to be part of this uh, cabal of commentators who uh, take a topic and chew it to pieces each and every week on the Overnightscape Central. I mean, maybe I won't do it every week, but uh, something sounds interesting. Uh, This could be fun, right? Right. Of course it can. That's why you think that there is no other reason to do this. I mean there uh, there will be no great financial recompense, fame, fortune, any of those things are highly unlikely to ensue. but uh, you'll be one of the gang and uh, part of the onsug which is now like 40 zillion podcasts big and uh would take uh probably 400 years at least to listen to everything in it but that's what makes it fun um and uh now's where i try to uh entice you well first i, I before i forget let us thank Chad, doc and frank because without them it's hey i'd be still here talking to myself um next week on the overnight scape central now uh just earlier i got the news and it, it hit me a lot harder and stranger than i would have thought it would have but gilbert gottfried has passed on a comedian and especially a show business historian as his series of podcasts has proven to be um it's i it's But, hence, the topic that uh, will be posited now for next week's Overnight Scape Central. It will be Gilbert Gottfried. But, we also lost, not long ago, Norm and Bob Saget. And, uh, yeah, that entire breed of comic uh, seems to be, like, literally rapidly dying out i mean if you've got a conspiracy theory we can chew on it here um but just uh yeah gilbert gone uh, norm bob Saget. i i bob Saget. out of the three i was not the hugest uh follower or fan of but uh will somebody please protect uh Anthony Akumia uh, like like uh, follow him around with nice cushions in case he falls and maybe hits his head anything like that yeah. any of these uh, i mean it looks uh, somebody just tried to knock Chris Rock's head off so um we got to be careful and that's the topic for next week and how this will work time wise yeah, we are a day late this week but that's tough uh, this uh, We are being productive and there's all kinds of stuff going on, but uh, you'll be hearing it as it uh, pops its little head up as uh, spring progresses here on the Overnightscape Underground. But back to how you can be part of the Overnightscape Central. The deadline for next week's program will be the evening of April 18th, 2022. I don't know. Get it to me by about 7 p.m. and you are assured of being part of the show. If you're late or what have you, uh, you'll be part of the next Quake Reversal Satellite or something like that that uh, it will not go to waste. You can always send something on any topic we have ever addressed and uh, it will turn up either on a subsequent central or Quake Reversals satellite program. Uh, the email address for to send your recording uh, and if it's long enough that it's too long to send, I think it's like what 20 megabytes or 25 megabytes, just Cut it into two pieces and tell me and I'll put it back together on the other end. Or if you got any problems, write me at this same email address and we will alleviate all your concerns and problems and all that. The email address, I know you've got a pen and a piece of paper or its equivalent, is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. That's kpqr.torc at gmail.com for your uh, contributions, ideas, thoughts, and uh, submissions. Oh, yes, submit to me. And um, with that, let us uh, return you to control of your brain. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go out the back way here. And uh, until the next time, set the controls for the heart of the fun.